Amen. Good morning, City Light. Great to be with you guys. Um, my name's Doug. I get to serve as an elder for our church. And hey, listen, I know I use a lot of like sports analogies and stories, uh, but I got to use one more, okay? It just works. This past Super Bowl, um, some friends of mine and our sons, we actually came here to the building and watched the game on the big screen. It was pretty cool, and most of us were Chiefs fans. Um, and so at the end of the game, something funny happened. Once the last play was over and we knew the Chiefs had won that game, we erupted, right? Like I ran over and picked up my six-year-old son and I said, we won the Super Bowl. Then I ran across the room to my teenage son and his friends and I was like, we're the world champions. And then we made fun of our friends who were rooting for the Eagles or the Broncos or one of them was rooting for the Detroit Lions, you know. So we were like making fun of them. We're saying, we're the best. We're the best team. We won the Super Bowl. But let's be honest. We, me and my sons and our fellow Chiefs fans, we didn't win the Super Bowl, right? It was the players and the coaches who actually won the Super Bowl, but man, I claimed it as my own. I acted like it was me out there on the field in that game, like it was us who woke up at 5 a.m. to lift weights and study film for hours on end and had ridiculous talent. We didn't win the Super Bowl, but I identified like I did, okay? Now, the big word for what I was doing in that moment is appropriate. Take something as my own. Really, the Super Bowl was Patrick Mahomes' story, but I appropriated it as my own. The Super Bowl was really the Kelsey brothers' story to tell, but I appropriated it as my own. Chances are you've done something similar when you voted for a certain candidate and then they got into city council or the president. You didn't actually win that office, but you appropriated it as your own. Or for many years now, Iowa Hawkeye fans have appropriated the joys of victory as their own. And Husker fans have appropriated the pains of many losses as their own. You get what I'm saying, right? Now, here's the deal, City Light. We can do that same thing with the stories of the Bible. This morning, we're reading about a king of Israel named Jeroboam, right? Who's ever heard that name before? But we can bridge the ancientness the distance of that story by appropriating it as our own. Identify with it. Read it and understand that we too are part of the people of God. We also long for a good king just like they did. We want to hear from God just like they did. This story is our story. So a quick review to catch us up in 1 Kings. The book starts with Solomon becoming king. And at first, he's wise and good and he loves God. But it isn't long before his sins catch up to him and he ruins everything. So God tells Solomon that he's going to tear away part of the kingdom and give it to this guy named Jeroboam. 
Now, God does that tearing process through the heavy-handed rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, okay? Now, this was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And so, the Rehoboam's heavy-handed. Jeroboam comes along, and he leads 10 of the 12 tribes of God's people out from under that nasty reign of Rehoboam. So, Jeroboam is looking pretty good, right? He's like a new Moses for God's people, leading them out into freedom. He's a new David who's going to be the king for God's people. In fact, a prophet of God shows up to Jeroboam and tells him, Hey, listen, Jeroboam, this is what God says about you. It's in chapter 11, verse 38. He says, If you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did. God saying, Jeroboam, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. Not bad. That's a pretty incredible promise. Now that's the origin story of Jeroboam. But not surprisingly, it isn't long before Jeroboam starts down his own slip and slide into sin. And as he slides into sin, we're going to see in 1 Kings chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're going to see three scenes of his slide into sin. The first one is Jeroboam wants the heart of the people more than he wants God. Second one is, Jeroboam wants life change without repentance. And the third one is, Jeroboam wants the fulfillment without the condition. So we're going to track through each of these scenes one by one and appropriate this story as our own. The first scene, Jeroboam wants the people's heart more than he wants God. He wants the people's heart more than he wants God. If you got your Bibles, go to chapter 12, verse 26. That's where we'll pick it up. I just want you guys to like see these verses on the actual pages, okay? They're really in there. Here's how it goes. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. Remember, right? Jeroboam led 10 of the 12 tribes of God's people out from under Rehoboam, and they're setting up their own kingdom now. But Jeroboam's like, oh no, this isn't going to last. Why? Verse 27. He's thinking in his heart, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, lowercase l, to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Here's the deal. God's people are supposed to go to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. That temple is still in Jerusalem. Rehoboam is also in Jerusalem. So Jeroboam is going, he's just connecting the dots here, right? He's just going, Oh, if my people have to regularly go back to Jerusalem, they're going to see Rehoboam there. And eventually their heart is going to turn back to him and they'll get rid of me. I'm going to lose their heart. So what does he do? Does he pray and seek the Lord and say, God, what do I do here? Does he open the Torah, the, the Bible that he had at the time and study God's word to see what God was saying? No. 
He does neither of those. In fact, instead of doing those things, he actually develops his own nationwide religion, which includes building not one, but two golden calves. Now, I don't know if you've read the book of Exodus, but the whole golden calf thing didn't go so well the first time. But now Jeroboam's like, you know what? Let's build two golden calves. And let's install some priests and make some feasts, all the things, right? And then in verse 28, Jeroboam cast himself as like the hero to his people when he says, he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough, you poor people. Behold your gods. Here's the golden calves, right? Oh, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, snap. Jeroboam done messed up. But remember why Jeroboam did this. Because he wanted the people's heart. He feared losing the people's heart. Instead of fearing God, he feared losing the people's heart. Now, our culture would probably today call this people-pleasing. And it's real. And it's dangerous. But our culture would say that instead of trying to please other people, we should just please ourselves. you got to look out for number one. Do what's right for you. Don't let anyone else be more important than you are to yourself. But that's not what the Bible's talking about here. The Bible takes it a step further, and the Bible calls us to put God on the throne of our lives and that we would desire to please Him more than we desire to please other people or please ourselves. That we would desire His honor even more than we desire the hearts of other people. The Bible would call people-pleasing, its word for it is fear of man. When we fear man more than we fear God, people become bigger and bigger while God becomes smaller and smaller, okay? Here's how the fear of man played out in my life recently. One Sunday, uh, uh, I had to come up here to the front like right before the gathering. And then right before the gathering started, I was just walking kind of back out down the center aisle. And I noticed that some of you kind of in these middle sections were wanting to make eye contact with me and like catch eyes and wave at me, which is normal, right? But something happened in my heart that morning. I thought, ooh, I like this. They probably admire me. They like me as their pastor. It was like every pastor's dream. But then the Sunday right before that one, guys, I was up here on the front row. And we were singing a song that said, we fall face down and we worship. And I felt like God just invited me to simply take a knee and bow before him. But I argued with God about that. God, what are these people going to think about me? They'll probably think that I'm going too far. They're going to think that I'm just too crazy. God, what are they going to think of me? In one moment, I'm soaking in the affirmation of people. The other moment, I'm scared of losing the affirmation of people. That's 
people-pleasing. That's what the Bible calls fear of man. For some others, fear of man, it might sound like, I, I want to stop cheating on my hours at work, but if someone finds out I'm actually being honest, they'll probably tell the other workers and they'll just make fun of me. Or it might sound like, man, every time I'm talking with my friend, I know I should probably tell them that Jesus is the real one who helps me process these decisions. But if I mention Jesus, they're going to kind of think I'm weird and maybe not want to be my friend. Or it could sound like, I don't think I could survive without so-and-so, so I'll do whatever it takes to make them happy. It's fear of man. So can I ask you, is there someone that you want to please more than you want to please God? Is there someone that you fear losing their approval or affirmation more than you fear God himself? It's a challenging question for us to ask as we appropriate this story. Jeroboam wanted the people's heart more than he wanted God himself. Second scene in Jeroboam's slide into sin is this. Jeroboam wanted life change without repentance. He wanted his life to change, but without actually repenting. So in chapter 13, we find Jeroboam standing at the altar of one of his golden calf monuments. And he's about to offer the first sacrifice there. But then a man of God from Judah. Okay, Jeroboam's in Israel now. This man of God's coming from Judah. Sorry for the sports analogy. It'd be like a Raiders fan hanging out with a bunch of Chiefs fans. You tracking with me? It's just not the right place. So this man of God comes up from uh, Judah into Israel. Jeroboam's about to offer the sacrifice, and this man of God has a word from God, and he delivers that word of God. When King Jeroboam hears it, he does not like it. Chapter 13, verse 4. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. So can you picture this? Jeroboam's there at this golden calf altar, about to strike the first sacrifice, kill the first animal, yet at the same time, he stretches out his hand, sees him, and he's yelling angry at that man of God. That's what's going on here. Next sentence. And his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. <laughs> it's like stuck out there, Right? So that's what is happening in this moment. This is like the stuff that Marvel movies are made of. Suddenly his hand goes dry, it withers, and he can't pull it back. So what happens next? What does he do? Verse 6. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. All of a sudden, Jeroboam's golden calves aren't so impressive anymore. He doesn't pray to those golden calves. Instead, he acknowledges the one true God. That's why in most of our Bible translations, Lord is in small caps, okay? That's because that is the name of God. So Jeroboam acknowledges that the Lord is the one true God. And did you catch what he said? 
Pray to the Lord your God. So Jeroboam is actually admitting that the one true God is no longer his God. He's admitting that he has turned away from God. There's so much here in so few words. Jeroboam's turned away from the one true God, and he knows it. So what happens next? The man of God prays, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Or literally, in the original language, Hebrew, that the Bible was written in, it says that the king's hand was returned to him. Jeroboam couldn't return it. The golden calves couldn't return it. But God himself, the one true Lord, returns it to him. Now, you would think, right, that all of this would be like a wake-up call for Jeroboam. Surely, God's got his attention now. Surely, he realizes all of his sin and the sin that he's made his people do. His people-pleasing religion is just in shambles now. Literally, an altar just fell apart. He's been shown to be as weak as a feather, but God Almighty healed him right back. Wake up, Jeroboam. Wake up, this is your time to turn back to God. But he doesn't. Instead, he invites this man of God over to his house in an attempt to people please this man of God and manipulate a prophet never works for a real true prophet of God. The prophet wisely declines the invitation and then the chapter ends in verse 33 with these words. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. And so we learn that Jeroboam wanted life changed, his hand to come back to him, without repentance, turning his heart to God. And then the whole chapter includes some weird stuff in there about a lion. Anyways, you'll have to read the chapter. But the whole chapter is this long wordplay on turning and returning that shows Jeroboam turned from God even when God turned toward him. Jeroboam wanted his hand back, but he wouldn't give his heart back to God. So, let's appropriate I do the same thing. This is going to be a smaller scale story, but at heart, it's really similar. Uh, I was battling a cold uh, last week, and uh, I just really wanted to be well because I had to like eat salads and be healthy and cut things out of my diet and stuff. And so I remember praying, Lord, I just want to be well. Jesus, please heal me. But that wasn't like the end of my prayer. There's, there's more to that sentence. I was really praying, Jesus, please heal me so that I can get back to eating my chocolate and not salads. You know, like I wasn't praying, Jesus, please heal me so that I have the full use of my faculties to enjoy and worship you. Jesus, please heal me so that I can serve my family. No, I was praying, Jesus, please heal me so that I can eat and drink whatever I want to, especially those chocolate bars. Now, again, this is smaller scale than what we're seeing in Jeroboam, but at heart it's similar. I was asking God to change the circumstances of my life, but without actually turning my heart to him. You ever been there? You just want your life to change, right? To get better or go more smoothly, but you're not actually ready to repent and turn to God. Now, hear this city light. I know repentance Repentance can sound like a bad or a mean word, 
But in the book of Kings, all throughout the Bible, repentance is actually shown to be a precious gift to us from God. It is such a kindness of God to offer repentance to us, to give us a path to turn our hearts to him. And when we turn our hearts to him, we get returned relationship with God. We get to experience a wholeness and life in him. Repentance isn't all about groveling and weeping and saying bunches and bunches of extra prayers. That can be penance when we try to pay for our sins. And that never works. Repentance is different. Repentance is when we turn our hearts to God. And in that process, yes, it sometimes includes God-given grief over our sin. But it's all about turning our hearts to God for restored and sweet and surrendered relationship with him. So I got to ask, is there something in your life you need to repent from? Something that you need to turn from and turn to God for sweet and surrendered relationship with him. Jeroboam wanted the people's heart more than he wanted God, and Jeroboam wanted life change without repentance. The third scene in his slide into sin is this. Jeroboam wanted the fulfillment of God's promise without the condition of God's promise. He wanted the fulfillment, he just didn't want to bother with the condition. In 1 Kings chapter 14, we see one final scene in Jeroboam's life. His son is sick. And that's a big deal because it was the son who would take the throne after Jeroboam dies. So a lot's on the line. What does Jeroboam do? He sends his wife, not himself, in disguise, not fully honest, to Ahijah the prophet to say, what's going on? Does God have a word for me on what's going to happen here? Now, why does he go to Ahijah? Because chapter 14, verse 2 tells us, Rehoboam remembers Ahijah the prophet said of me that I should be king over this people. So Jeroboam's remembering that promise back from chapter 11, verse 38, where Ahijah said, hey, God's telling you, you'll be king over this people. But apparently, Jeroboam's forgotten a lot of other stuff. In fact, as you read chapter 14, you learn that Ahijah the prophet is now blind, but Jeroboam didn't even know that, you know? Like he's that distant and that far from the word of the Lord and the prophet who declares it. Also, he's trying to bribe a prophet, which again, it never works. It didn't work the first time in chapter 13. It's not going to work here either. And he sends his wife in disguise. God, of course, talks to Ahijah. He knows when the wife is coming in and he knows what he's supposed to say to the wife. What does he say? Chapter 14, verse 9. He says to the wife to tell Jeroboam, Jeroboam, you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me, that's God, to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, the chapter continues and things go really bad for Jeroboam. If you want to see how bad they get, you have to actually read chapter 14. Here's what's happening in this scene. Jeroboam wants God to still fulfill his promise to him, even though Jeroboam didn't fulfill any of the conditions of the promise. 
God promised Jeroboam, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house. I'll give you a dynasty, sons staying on the throne. If, chapter 11, verse 38 says, if you keep my statutes and walk in my ways. Now Jeroboam's saying, God, I still want your promise, even though I didn't bother with any of the conditions. And God's like, nah, man, that's not how I roll. That's not who I am. It's a tragic ending to Jeroboam's life. His son dies, and then the rest of his family dies. Way worse deaths. It is gruesome. It's grisly. And then his second son actually does become king for a grand total of two years before he dies, his gruesome and grisly death. So, three scenes in Jeroboam's slip and slide into sin. And as we've looked at these three scenes, we've tried to appropriate them as our own. Enough to realize that we have also sinned. We have also done wrong. Maybe not to the scale of like an ancient king over a kingdom, but in our own lives and in our own hearts, we too have sinned. So is there any hope for us? Like as we read these stories, is there any hope that we can find? City Light, I think there is. Our hope is to behold the word of the Lord. Behold the word of the Lord. Throughout these scenes, there's this thread of the word of the Lord. Back in 1 Kings 11, when Ahijah the prophet first comes to Jeroboam and speaks a word of the Lord to him, he starts that word with, Behold! And man, if Jeroboam would have beheld that word, then he never would have gone on to build a nationwide people-pleasing religion. But then, even after he had constructed his two golden calves, chapter 13, verse 1, starts with, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord. And when that man of God starts speaking the word, chapter 13, verse 2, early on he says, Behold, oh Jeroboam, if only you would have beheld. The narrator of this story, he's kind and he's courageous to us to tell us readers, behold, 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 you got to see this. Open your eyes. Look at this. It's important. Okay, Mr. Narrator, what do you want us to see? Behold the word of the Lord. And this is where Jesus enters the ancient story. This is where Jesus enters our stories today. This is where appropriating this ancient story means we behold Jesus in all of his glory and his power and his kingship. Why? Well, City Light, you know this. Who is the word of the Lord? It, oh, it, Sunday school answer. Let me try this again. Who is the word of the Lord? Yeah, it's Jesus, right? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what have we done? We have seen Him. We've beheld Him in His glory. In, in 1 Kings, God sent his word to Jeroboam multiple times, right? Through a man of God, through the prophet Ahijah, through miraculous sign of his hand coming back to him. God sent his word, but Jeroboam didn't behold 
the word of the Lord. Now, God sends his word to us in Jesus Christ, his son. So city light, let's behold the word of the Lord. Jesus never gave in to people pleasing or the fear of man. Jesus never craved the people's heart more than God. The Gospels tell us clearly that Jesus knew the hearts of men, but he never bowed down to the hearts of men. He only bowed to the Father, even to the degree that he was willing to turn over the tables of their man-made religion. Oh, city like God has sent his word to us in Jesus Christ's son. So, Let's behold the word of the Lord. Jesus never turned away from the Father. His heart and his face always faced the Father, even through the heartbreak and the horror of suffering on the cross. Jesus lived and Jesus died facing, turned toward the Father. God has sent his word to us in Jesus Christ, his son. So City Light, let's behold the word of the Lord. All of us are like Jeroboam in that we've sinned. We None of us have met the conditions of God's good promises. But praise be to the Lord for his word. Jesus Christ has met all of the conditions of God's good promises. Listen to all God's commands. Jesus did that. Walk in the ways of God. Jesus did that. Do what's right in God's eyes. Jesus did that. Keep the statutes and commandments of God all the way through, every last one of them. Jesus is the king who met all the conditions of God's promises. Therefore, God is delighted and happy to fulfill his promise to Jesus, the one and only true king of kings forever. So our response, how do we appropriate this ancient story? We behold the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Ahijah the prophet, the man of God coming out of Judah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. City light, may we behold the word of the Lord, the son of God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we love you, Jesus. Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we're so thankful for how you met and fulfilled every single condition of God's promises. Not one did you slack on. Not once did you turn your back on the Father. Not once did you give in to people-pleasing or the fear of man. But Jesus, you remained faithful in your obedience. You remained faithful in your posture of being turned toward the Lord. You remained faithful in your heart's desire to please the Father. So Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we run into you and say, cover us up, Jesus. We appropriate all of you and say, it's ours. Now God relates to us as God relates to you, Jesus. We find all of our identity in you, Jesus. We find all of our hope in you, Jesus. We find all of our life in you, Jesus. You are the one we trust. You are the one we need. And Jesus, be the one that we behold. 
I pray now for anyone in this room or tuning in online who maybe for the first time they're realizing they've been leaning into themselves. They've been trying to pay for their own sins, but they know they can't. Oh, Jesus, may they behold you and turn towards you, casting all of their sins on you, putting all of their trust in you. Pray for those who are trying to build their own religion and resume of goodness to try to please you, God, but they know they can't do it. So God, this morning, may they turn to Jesus, put all their faith and trust in Jesus. And for those who have tried to get the fulfillment of your promises, God, even though they know they can't meet the conditions, may they turn to Jesus knowing he meets the conditions and therefore they get all the fulfillment of your promises. Like 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus, we praise you, we remember you, and Jesus, we behold you. Pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. City Light, we want to respond this morning.